<laughs> Why are you now singing Airwolf? Because I am. Okay. It's what we need at the beginning of the show. I think Stephen Lacey uses Airwolf for fantastic cast. We do have Airwolf at the beginning of the show. Yes, we do. This briefing is from file A56 7W. It's from Airwolf. Can we not have it in copyright? It's we'll have to change his. <laughs> Don't know. That's asking. And I think it, I would imagine it's already copyrighted at Universal Studios. We can copyright it as a sub copyright. Can we? Yeah. Because is that is that a legal thing? Okay, let's trademark it then. I, I think they've probably already done that. Right, it's reserved. I possibly suspect they may have thought of that. Can we add in a few extra notes and copyright that? What and change it subtly so it's. Now it sounds like a should have a big clown nose. Hello, lovely people, and welcome to week four. Yes, week four of Spider-Man Month here at Hey Kids Comics. This week, neck deep in Spider-Man. Well, you might be. Yeah. I'm Andrew Leyland, and I've been taking you on a personal journey through my favourite story of my favouritest character. Whilst along for the ride has been my co-host and offspring... Michael Leyland. Yay, who's chipped in with bon mots and scripted ad-libs at his convenience. Uh, a couple of bits of business. Last week, Michael, you made a tiny, titty little error. Oh, you do surprise me. Mike said Matt Gurgan was dead, and I was pretty convinced he wasn't, but I wasn't about to argue with him just in case I was wrong. Uh, but Gargan was Venom in New Ways to Die, and continued to work with Norman Osborn throughout Siege and into Dark Avengers, and then in big time, he was refitted with a scorpion suit by Alistair Smythe. So therefore he's not dead. You know what it was? What was because it? Because I remembered him being Venom in New Ways to Die. Yes. I also remembered him... Remembered... Venom killing one of his hosts in Marvel Knights and got the two mixed up. Right. Fair enough. That's perfectly understandable. I didn't remember off the top of my head, and I've read New Ways to Die as well. I had to look that up in between last week's show and this week's show. Anyway, following on from Michael's desire to cover emails as they arrive, we have this week's email from... Luke Jackanet. Hurrah! I, I only know that for the with the benefit of looking at the email now. Well, it don't matter. So for all you playing at home... <laughs> I left it blank for you to to say. I didn't I didn't want the people at home to join in. We're not uh, like... It, it's, it's not a, a Punch and Judy show. Well, no. He's behind you! I, I, oh, no, he isn't! I imagine all our listeners to be like Nan and talk to the radio, talk <laughs> to the voices. I, I do that. I talk to podcasts. Well... And then forget to email the podcast what I was talking to them about. Anyway, Luke Giaconetti's email this week begins with Mrs. Leyland. Okay. See what I did that? Very good. Just got finished listening. Is a word. It is now. Copyright it. Yeah. That's ours now. Uh, or his. We copyrighted it first. Okay. Just got finished listening to the first episode of Spider-Man Month on Hey Kids Comics. You're right, this is a lot more timely if we do it like this, isn't it? And I have to say I was really impressed. And it, you really dug deep to find a pair of web-ed stories to talk about. Even though I was not familiar with either story, your enthusiasm for them was entirely evident and it was a joy to hear you talk about your friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. Just for him anyway. Yes. 
a joy to listen to you. Yes, it was. It's always a joy I can to listen to me as your father. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> Ignoring you. Thank you, Luke. You're a much better son of life. Yeah, you want to come on a course this show with me? Especially when I do Spider-Man month. You always choose issues that I know. I've chosen one this week that you have a very active interest in. Yes. So don't say that. The other two have no meaning to me. You've still been very funny. Okay. It's like you complained about that Grant Morrison story. That's how Spider-Man month's been every week. Okay. I've just been picking up X chapter of an X story. Well, you haven't really, though, have you? Uh Let's be honest. Select few issues from the clock. A select few issues from the clock, so. As in one. Too. Well, if we count today's, we were not got there yet. <laughs> I'll let you get. There. Can I can I carry on with on Luke's then. email? Oh dear me! Spider-Man, on time. like Batman, is a character which everyone likes to one degree or another. I think my favourite Spider-Man stories are his early tussles with Venom, as penned by David Michelini, up to and including the final showdown in Amazing Spider-Man 375, and then Maximum Carnage after that. So yeah, I think Maximum Carnage like is Maximum the Carnage. single worst Spider-Man story ever written. I like it. Yes. Because I was like eight when I read it. Yeah, there is that. So yeah, fur plan, fur color. Uh, I liked the mature Peter from that area. Area. <laughs> From that era, he had a wife and a home. Yes, it was an apartment, but they lived in Manhattan, so that's a grown-up thing. But he still had troubles and often found himself down on his luck. Well, as down on his luck as someone with a frisky redhead supermodel for a wife can be anyway. (laughs) Yes, and she was very frisky. It also helps that this period has some great artists, in my opinion. Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson and Mark Bagley. As iconic as the McFarlane Spidey was for my generation, Bagley will always be the Spider-Man artist of my lifetime, as far as I'm concerned. He was such a clean, fluidic style, which is a perfect fit for the wall crawl. It wasn't as showy as McFarlane's look, but it was more grounded in reality and made his acrobatics look that much more amazing, pun intended. I prefer Steve Ditko and Doctor Strange, or his own creations like The Question or Hawk and Dove, but his Spider-Man is the stuff of legend. It gets to the point where if you see an early Silver Age story where someone else draws Spidey, for instance, I think Don Heck draws him in an early issue of The Avengers, he looks off. Ditko's art is certainly quirky, so I'm not surprised Michael didn't care for it. But, like all the classic Marvel artists, he was a great storyteller and his style was all his own. Uh, I See, I can understand people not liking Steve Ditko. And it's not one of those... Oh, you can understand it now. No, no. It's just someone else, but when it's me, I was dissing you for comic effect. I certainly can understand you not liking Ditko stuff, because it is very different, and it is very quirky, and it is very stylized. And even compared to other Marvel comics of the time... It's different. Yeah, it looks nothing like other Marvel books. He doesn't look anything like Don Heck. He doesn't look anything like Jack Kirby. And it is one of those things where Luke's absolutely right, though, that anyone else drawing Spider-Man at that time, it looked wrong. Which okay. is why I think Ramita deserves all the credit in the world for coming in and making the character his own. Because that can't be easy. Yeah. Because Ditko defined him. It's like when Matt Smith came in and took over from Doctor Who, after how phenomenally popular David Tennant was. Within one episode, he owned the role. Okay. And you'd forgotten who David Tennant was. Yeah, Christopher Eccleston was still there. I know, but Christopher Eccleston didn't have anything to follow, did he? Should have it been was, off the earth for 16 years. It was new with him. Yeah. yeah. But Christopher Eccleston, I think, doesn't get the credit he deserves because it was his casting that made everyone go, oh, right, so they're taking this seriously then. Because if you remember in the lead up to the new show being announced, everyone was saying, Paul Daniels is going to be Doctor Who, Ken Dodd is going to be, and Eddie Izzard's going to be Doctor Who. And then when they announced Christopher Eccleston is going to be Doctor Who, overnight that stopped. 
Yeah. All that newspaper speculation stopped dead because it was, oh, they've cast a serious actor in the role. Crap, now what do we do? And then they did it again with David Tennant. Uh, no, they, they kind of like, who's David Tennant? Because David Tennant wasn't very well known when he did Doctor Who. Everyone forgets that. Yeah. And it's the same with Ramita and Ditko to bring it back on topic. Okay. Ramita deserves all the credit in the world for not only following Ditko, but making Spider-Man his own. Yeah. But I don't think anyone can take anything away from Ditko's contribution. And I love his Doctor Strange stuff as well. So Ditko's Eccleston and Ramita's Tennant. I would argue Ramita's Matt Smith. Okay. Because Christopher Eccleston, and he is my second favourite Doctor, yeah. but Chris Eccleston had only done one season. Yeah. So David Tennant didn't really have a tough act to follow. If you remember, Tennant was cast as the Doctor before the first series even aired, if they got a second series, because at that point they didn't know whether they were going to. Fair enough. But David Tennant was already cast before the series was aired. Okay. Whereas Matt Smith was following Tennant's incredibly popular run yeah. as the Doctor. Where squealing girlies were watching it, and as well as long-time fans. So Ramita's Matt Smith to Ditko's David Tennant okay. is my argument. Okay. That's what I think, anyway. Anyway, to continue with Luke's email, I'm looking forward to hearing more of Spider-Man Month. Well, that's fortunate, because you've got another four weeks after that issue one, episode one. Will you be guys be covering any of the cartoon series? I grew up watching Spider-Man and his amazing friends with its partner, The Incredible Hulk, and I'm a big fan of the 90s Spider-Man series as well. Keep up the good work, dude, Luke. Ah, well, we touched upon the Spider-Man cartoon last week, didn't we, when we talked about Venom? Yes. Vaguely. Um, and I'm halfway through watching season three of the DVD box set that Angela bought me for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going nowhere near Amazing Friends. I've not watched Amazing Friends since I was a kid. Wasn't it Spider-Man? Just Firestar and Iceman. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it as a kid. Ice. Yeah. Mm. Well, it was going to be Spider-Man, Iceman and the Human Torch. Which makes more sense. And they nixed the Human Torch for some reason. Let's put fire next to ice. Well, it makes work. I do remember Seven Little Superheroes being a good episode. Okay. I vaguely recall that one. Isn't that Firestar or Flamebird? Flamebird. Flamebird is a DC character. Well, who's this person? Firestar. Firestar. Wasn't that her first appearance? Yes, and now she's in. But we discussed this last week. She was the inspiration for alias is Jessica Jones okay. Bendis wanted her to be Angelica Jones okay. and they wouldn't let him for some reason okay. um, anyway I'm middle way through the third season of that show and there are some things that are just rubbing me the wrong way about it now the fact that not only have they had Venom before they had the Green Goblin and Hobgoblin but they had the Hobgoblin before the, before Green, the Green Goblin and I'm just well, sat did, there going, what? Isn't the Hobgoblin's origin was he stole some <coughs> Green Goblin's old tech Not in dead. the cartoon series, no. So, I'm okay. still enjoying it. I like the show. I'm I'm a bit, what's it about Avi Arad, though? Okay. How can we sell more toys? Anyway, keep up the good work, Luke. Back Thank you, Luke. Send us more emails. Because you're the only one who does. He's not the only one who does. He's just more prominent. Yes, he's, he's more prolific. He's the one who sends us one every week, more or less, if we're talking about something he's interested in. He has a, he has a weekly checklist. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough, I think. Anyway, carrying on to this week's illustrious episode of our own show, I have three, count them, three magnificent, shiny issues of goodness for today's show. Quite literally shiny. <clears throat> Quite literally shiny. Um, special celebratory issues. 
of Spider-Man from over the years, paying particular attention to issues that I thought were especially strong or I have some kind of personal connection to. With that in mind, our first issue of Through the Starting Gate is Amazing Spider-Man 300. Featuring the team just mentioned by Luke, David McElhinney and Todd McFarlane, this shining example of comic book magnificence came out in the United States on the January 12th, 1988. But that was not when I purchased it. Oh, did you oh, print, print, print no, it no, in no, a no, no, British no, no, reprint, no. which came out in black and white? No. Now, this issue split up into three. Yes, get out. <clears throat> in the summer of 1988, I was 15. Same age as you are. No, you're 16 now. Yeah, Yeah, you get to be 16 when you leave school. I was 15 when I left school. Because of when my birthday is. And I was getting ready to leave school. As is the norm with most people, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. But as the country was about to enter another recession, the more things changed. There was more than one. Oh, yes. Um, And young people. It's just been in constant recession. Yeah, occasionally there's a high point. But for the rest of the time, it's recession and doom and gloom and death and destruction. And you look out your window and go, What's this stuff happening? Uh, Anyway, young people weren't struggling to find jobs. So it was decided for me that I would be going to college. Ultimately, well, both me and my granddad, really. This ended up being the best thing I could have done. But at this moment in time, I was adrift. And a little lost. You, by contrast, know exactly what you want to do, don't you? Oh, yeah. To add to this, I'd pretty much given up on comic books. That's just wrong. Imaginable. It is, isn't it? A year or so earlier, I had reached the mature decision that now I was officially too old for this stuff and it was time to grow up. <laughs> Ironic! I know. You used to be a tool. <laughs> Thanks, love. <laughs> Added to the fact that in the last issue I bought, Amazing Spider-Man 279, the Hobgoblin had been revealed to be Ned Leeds in one of the most botched reveals to a major storyline ever to see publication in a major Marvel comic book. And thus, I decided to quit. That bad? Yes, it was that bad. Um, yeah, because the Hobgoblin storyline had been bubbly long for a while at that point, and then when you got to, there'd been that many misfires. Flash Thompson was arrested for being the Hobgoblin, but it wasn't him. Okay. And then Ned Leeds was revealed to be the Hobgoblin after he was dead. So you're like, what? Lazarus Pit. No, alas. Comic no. Rising. So I quit. It was quite an easy decision by that point, to be honest with you. Uh, I had a look on Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at the Marvel titles that were released the month that I quit and I was only buying the Spider-Man books none of which were going through a creative high point at that point Byrne was off the Fantastic Four so I'd stop reading it Simonson had stopped drawing Thor so I'd stop reading it John Romita Jr. had left the X-Men so I'd stop reading it and Miller had left Daredevil for the second time Uh, in fact casting my eyes over all of the Marvel comics released the month that Amazing Spider-Man 279 was released there's an awful lot of cat there Okay. Really, especially in comparison to the early 80s when pretty much every title was a winner um, Stern was still on The Avengers but not for long thanks to creative differences with editor Mark Gruenwald uh, but there were an inordinate amount of comics based on TV properties that I had no interest in there were three Transformers comics 
Thundercats comic, a Masters of the Universe, Muppet Babies, and G.I. Joe. No offence, Luke. Kerbos and Chuck Norris that I just I had no interest there in reading. still is several Transformers. I, well, I was happy to watch this stuff on TV. There's a Thundercats but and I'd, Masters of the Universe. I've got no interest in buying comics about them. Fair enough. So they were publishing stuff that I wasn't interested in. Infestation! Yes. In addition... There were seven New Universe books, Boston which uh, in the little God, was it 86 or 87 shooter launched New Universe, which was to be this big Marvel imprint of a bunch of new characters that existed in their own universe separate from the Marvel Universe, and it was launched as this big 25th anniversary celebration. By and large, all but forgotten today. So it was like... Crap. Okay, like DC's Wildstorm. Um, only not. Forgotten. Only not. Yeah. The one that what's his face did. What? The one with, with static and all that. Yes, it was kind of like Milestone, but Milestone was good. Yeah. It's pretty much the only way we can. This was. You mean Jim Shooter wrote something that was? Bad? Well, he didn't write them all. Peter David wrote some, and John Byrne was on some, and Archie Goodwin was on some, and it's the talent was there. It's just the concept for whatever he just didn't take off and it didn't succeed. Star Wars had gone and was only represented by an Ewoks comic. Sounds great. E, 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 Ewoks. If the early 80s was a creative high point for Marvel, the late 80s were a company in crisis. By comparison, DC Comics, there was a creative resurgence and for the first time I was buying more DC books than Marvel. I was picking up all the Superman and Batman titles, Teen Titans, although that book was starting to lose me since Perez left and uh, the Star- the monthly Star Trek comic and looking back I've even gone back and picked more books from there on the back issue market Perez's Wonder Woman The Flash Suicide Squad Justice League are all comics I've gone back to and bought full runs of I still decided to quit okay. Cold Turkey done done and dusted Okay. I am too mature sure. I wrapped up school on June 15th 1988 Yes, my last exam was on my 16th birthday. How sucky is that? And I don't mean Stackhouse. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember school. Back to the show. Back to the show. Um, I went to stay with my mum for a couple of days after my last exam wrapped up. Uh, As I mentioned before in the show, I didn't grow up with my parents. Rather, I was raised with my grandparents. But I had, and still have, quite a close relationship with my mum and my sister Claire, who was born in the autumn of 1986. I would regularly go and stay with Nana Julie over the summers and over half-terms and stuff, mainly because our Peter had boxes of comics. Yeah. But mainly because after our Claire arrived, I would go and stay with them when she was a baby. On this occasion, we were in St. Helens, which is a tiny little northern town in the ass end of nowhere, and I wandered into a newsagent that I knew sold comics, just to browse through the shelves while my mum was off shopping for clothes. Okay. Because, God, that's boring. I think I may have had our Claire with me. I think it may have been one of them. I'll take our Claire in the pram. Mum, you can go off and do some shopping. I was like, okay, fair enough. Oh, you were nice as well. I was. I I love my sister. Okay. My sister's great, especially when she was little. I mean, she's lovely now. Tried corrupting her with comics. It failed miserably. But anyway, um, I've mentioned before again that back in the days of newsstand distribution, I knew of shops that sold US comics pretty much every little major and minor town in the north of England. Everywhere we'd go, I knew of somewhere that sold comics. And there it was. Amazing Spider-Man 300. The same issue... 
Yeah. Was this the line and sinker? This was, yes. The same issue I have in my hand here. I was immediately drawn to the cover. The number 300 is repeated all over it in red. I quickly deduced that this must be the 300th issue. Nothing gets past me, does it? No, it's the 25th anniversary issue. <laughs> that as well. Uh, there was this gorgeous image of Spider-Man still in his black and white suit, I was quite surprised to see, hurtling across the New York skyline with spaghetti webbing around him. Whilst it has become very much an iconic image, for me, this is still McFarlane's best ever Spider-Man pose. It's not too exaggerated, like he would later make it. But it's it's still good. within the realms of credibility. Burly, burly, but still there. Uh, and yeah, but it's not stiff. It's it's a fantastic piece of art. I didn't recognise who that was at all. I'd been out of comics for a year or so at this not point. Even that little signature. No, that meant nothing to me. I didn't know who McFarlane was. Fair enough. I was out of com. I was out of comics. I was done. I was gone. Fair enough. Uh, so I picked it up and leafed through it. The artwork blew me away. I looked back at the splash page, art by Todd McFarlane. I had a vague recollection that he'd done some Batman but I couldn't remember exactly what because Batman Year 2 was Batman Year 2 before this must have been if I recognised it mustn't it I mean it is hard to think back now that McFarlane's a superstar millionaire with his own company that makes toys but at the time Todd McFarlane was a real breath of fresh air on the comic scene his art was dynamic and different stylish and just plain weird but in a really exciting way his art had no real major drawbacks at this point there's no little blobby noses or the little irritating shortcuts that he would get as he went on it was clean it was detailed it was fantastic the artist wasn't the only surprise as I looked at the splash page let's remove this issue from its little mylar snuggie on the first page Murray Jane Watson Parker what? 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 That's it. I had to own the book. Okay. I had to own the comic. I, when did that happen? Who did that? What? What the? What? What? what, what now? Nah. See, I've grown up with that. See, I didn't even know it had happened. Fair enough. That had happened while I was gone. Was, was it not some big? No. Big thing. Was not it? a big deal that, uh, that I recall that Spider-Man's got married. I don't remember it making news headlines or anything like that. Um, I flipped through the rest of what was on the stands at the time and was delighted to see Amazing Spider-Man two ninety eight and two ninety nine were also there. Because this was back in the day that they just left them on the stands. They just put new issues out. So you could pick up a bunch of issues at the same time if you were lucky. Both had excellent covers by the same guy. And if the interior art wasn't quite as detailed, well, this was due to McFarlane being inked by Bob McLeod. Now, don't get me wrong, I think Bob McLeod's a brilliant artist. But he doesn't really go well over McFarlane's pencils. Still, I thought I had a couple of shiny pound coins in my pocket and these three issues only cost 40p each with 300 costing 50p. So what the hell, right? It's only three issues. It's not like I was going to fall off the wagon or anything. Did you? What do you think? (laughs) This special 25th anniversary issue of The Amazing Spider-Man was entitled Venom and written by David Michelini with art by Todd McFarlane. The aptly named Rick Parker lettered Bob Sharon coloured, Jim Salakrup edited, and Tom DeFalco was the editor in chief. Is that what Stanley called me one issue when he forgot what he was called? What? Pinky Parker. Rick Parker. Parker. No, he called him Peter Palmer. Uh Bob Banner. Bob Banner and Peter Palmer. Yeah. I don't know if you ever made any more mistakes like that. The story is thus Stanley proudly presents a comic book milestone the fabulous 300th issue of The Amazing Spider Man. 
Mary Jane, newly wedded wife of Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, has been reduced to a quivering wreck by the appearance of a big bulky weightlifter type in a black and white Spider-Man costume. Peter takes MJ to a hotel for the night, but sleep won't come. Whilst he doesn't know the man MJ described, the costume and its ability to move of its own accord sounds like the organic alien symbiote he brought back from the Secret Wars. The next day, Peter picks up the sonic blaster from the Fantastic Four that helped him defeat the alien symbiote the last time, and then heads over to meet MJ at Bedford Towers, where MJ has managed to pull some strings to get them an apartment. On the way there, Peter's spider sense doesn't tingle, but he gets the odd sensation that he's being watched. He makes the rest of the way of Spider-Man ditching his imaginary pursuer. After viewing the apartment, MJ and Peter have dinner at Aunt May's and across town at Our Lady of Saints Church in Lower Manhattan. The man who followed Peter and terrorised Murray Jane is praying when a young police officer interrupts. The man kills him. MJ and Peter's friends help them move, but whilst they enjoy their time together with family and friends, Peter spots a black-clad figure swinging around. He follows a Spider-Man, but the figure attacks as Spidey sees him head into his apartment. Shocked that his spider sense didn't work, the figure says that he is now called Venom, but used to be Eddie Brock, the reporter who revealed the identity of the Sin Eater murderer a few months ago in a series of expose articles, but was turned into a laughing stock when Spider-Man revealed who the real murderer was. Brock, on a downward spiral, blamed Spider-Man for his downturn in good fortune, and, whilst praying at Our Lady of Saints Church in Lower Manhattan, I just copied and pasted that, the symbiote came a-calling after being defeated by Spider-Man. The two bonded over their mutual hatred, and Venom was born. Whilst Venom was monologuing, Spider reaches the Sonic Blaster, but Venom intercepts and it's time for Fighty McFightenstein. Spidey blasts Venom with the Sonic Blaster, but it is finally bonded to Bok. Spidey can't kill the symbiote without killing Eddie. Eddie uses the resulting confusion to knock Spider-Man cold. Coming to the aforementioned Our Lady of Saints Church in Lower Manhattan, copied and pasted, Spider-Man is webbed to the inside of the central bell, right in the path of the clapper. In two minutes, Spider-Man will be spider-paced. Venom leaves because he doesn't want to know for whom the bell tolls, and Spider-Man manages to get Spider-Man manages to get an arm free, despite the fact Venom has used a veritable ream of webbing, and Spidey uses the clapper to ultimately extricate himself. Spidey deduces that having used so much webbing, webbing that is internally generated, Venom must be feeling the effects. Spidey takes the fight to the earth, forcing Venom to use more and more webbing to keep up, and, as Spidey predicted, he eventually runs out. Spider-Man takes Venom to Four Freedoms Plaza whilst he's out cold, and returns to MJ, who can't look him in the eye. It's the black suit, she says, and she pulls out a copy of the old red and blues. The legend begins anew. As you may have surmised, this was not a simple buy three comics and done. As I was unfortunately back at that point. I discovered McFarlane was drawing the Hulk, and so I started picking that up. Romita Jr. was drawing Daredevil, so I started picking that up. Hobgoblin was back in Web of Spider-Man, and Jerry Conway was back on Spectacular Spider-Man, so I started getting those. Over at DC, I discovered that Action Comics was at the 600th issue, so I had to buy that. And Supergirl was back, whilst Batman was facing the Ten Knights of the Beast, and Robin was about to get killed by the Joker. It's the four-part story just prior to the death in the family thing. Was that when he gets attacked by the kid? The KG Beast, yes. The KG Beast. Which is a really cheesy 60s name when you think about it. But it had great covers by Mike Zek. Well, the costume's a bit silly. Yes, the costume's a bit silly as well. It's very Bane, isn't it? KG Gimp. Yeah. There was also this new upstart company making Aliens comics, so I picked those up as well. Okay. Just when I thought I was out... Hold me back in. Anyway, 
I think the first thing we need to point out about issue 300 is that you first... Where did you first read this? Let me tell you the story yourself. Well, I'm glad you're going to say that. I'll tell the story. <laughs> no, go on. You, you say where you first read this. In the trade paperback you dumped on me. What? It, it dumped on you? It wasn't really a dump. It, it was, Michael, why, why don't you read this? See if you like it. Okay. The next day, you ain't getting this back. See? Yeah. You thoroughly enjoyed this as a kid. How many times did you read that trip? But judging by the state of it... Several. I'll wager that you read it quite a lot. Quite a lot. Yes. I'm a great dad. How old was I when I gave you that? I don't know. You How old were you? You were only about six. Five or six when I, I gave just, you that. I just remember always having it. You know, was it not because we were watching the animated cartoon? Or does that predate you? No, it would have been. Would Fox it? Kids. Used to show it all the time. Oh yeah, so Fox Kids repeated it then. Yeah, because it was originally on BBC, I think. So if, yeah, we would watch it on Fox Kids when it used to get repeated, didn't we? Yeah. Right, that was it. So it, so yeah, it was probably 2000, 2001 when I gave you that. Then you were about five or six years old. Yeah, right. But I just remember always having it. Yeah, it's always been on your bookshelf since I gave it you. It's mm. not been something that. Yeah, I'll hope you didn't put it back. No, no, it's fine. When I'm dead. <laughs> You've got something, though. Dad gave me this when I was six. You know, when you're alive, <laughs> I'll also still have it. <laughs> well, there is that. Not to be too morbid. Uh, we do need to point out that this issue is full of continuity to previous stories. Spider-Man picked up the alien costume in Secret Wars 8 and discovered its true intent in Amazing Spider-Man 258. He defeated it once and for all, or so he thought, in Web of Spider-Man issue 1. The red and blue costume was trashed in Web of Spider-Man issue 18, and Spidey wore a black and white cloth copy made by the Black Cat in Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man issue 99 until this issue. The Sin Eater storyline ran through the all-new, all-during Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man issues 107 through 110, and Peter Parker has lived in his Chelsea Street apartment since Amazing Spider-Man 139. Whew. Surprisingly, given the era this was produced, only three of those are footnoted. Okay. Because this was the end of an era in moving out of his Chelsea Street apartment. Was it? Yeah, he'd, he'd been this? living there. He moved into his Chelsea Street apartment after the death of Gwen and Norman. Harry starts cracking up and ultimately becomes the Green Goblin mm-hmm. and stops paying the rent. So on the apartment so he gets kicked out he has to find a new place okay. and he's lived in the Chelsea Street apartment since then so it was quite a, a big deal that he so was, was moving this out was him graduating there. again yeah this was him graduating again to one of MJ's places uh, from the beginning then seeing as we've waffled on for half an hour now without actually getting to the issue itself yeah. uh, page one seeing Mary Jane quivering is slightly disturbing because Marvel did quite a good job with MJ Marvel you want fries with that come on Pluto Marvel have always Marvel. done a good job. Marvel have always done a good job with MJ not being a damsel in distress. Mm. So this was this was more could have been made of MJ realizing this is what life for Spider Man's life's going to be like. But they don't really pursue that, do they? No. Um, I do love MJ's big eighties her and her leggings, which is quite nice. McFarlane does quite a good job of portraying MJ's fear of the black costume on page two as well, with lots of little panels and close-up of Murray Jane's eyes. Filling them with tears is a nice touch, and she only really recovers when Peter takes his mask off. Page four, Eddie Brock doesn't seem to have a bed. Maybe he sleeps on his weights. <clears throat> he has a dossy apartment full of weightlifting equipment, and that's it. Interesting. He's a driven man. I do like all the articles 
on yeah. his walls about Spider-Man with the related headings. The art on this page is really good, isn't it? Starts up in my bed, I'd, I'd, I'd look at all those little articles. Did you? Because yeah. you can't actually... They've got all headings. I like the all-new, all-dur in Spider-Man, which is a nod to Peter Parker. Yeah. Which is that adopted that tagline at this point. Yeah, good. Well, uh, Venom has no mouth, which is quite funny. Um, it just is funny. It is funny, Venom with no mouth, but Larson has, would have no that, wouldn't he? As well. Larson had that. Yeah. McFarlane never dreamed with the big Mick Jagger tongue, or Gene Simmons tongue. Uh, Eric Larson added that later on. Yeah. So, which begs your question, who all these people technically created Venom? Because you don't think of Venom now without the tongue, do you? No. Uh, in the 80s, carrying on through the boot, John Byrne would use a lot of photographs of New York. Yeah. In the backgrounds on his art, and he's run on the Fantastic Four, and Marlon does. Um, and Marlon? Who's Marlon? Isn't he the fish in Finding Nemo? Todd Marlon. Todd Marlon. Where is he? Where's my son? Uh, McFarlane does this a lot in this issue. Um, shows up. Yeah. I'm your son. <laughs> Pages 6, 9, 11, 24, and 47 all use this technique to a great effect, particularly the bottom, though. Bottom of page 11. It doesn't look like it's cheating as well. No, it's, he's done a really good job of blending it in with the art, hasn't he? Mm. I was quite impressed with that. It's very good. Page 9. MJ is drawn in a sexy negligee, which, according to my wife, is either something that a woman would wear if she has no actual intention of sleeping that night, if you get what I'm saying, or liked um, feeling like cheese being cut talent. in half by cheese string. No, that's not what I mean. Use your imagination, kid. Um, page 11. I, I don't see what's wrong with saying camera instead of putting SLR and then having to explain what an SLR is. Maybe they just want to teach us something. Okay. You know, you remember when comics used to do that. Flash comics used to do that all the time. Flash facts. Flash facts. Where they'd give you little snippets of pseudoscience or real life information. Mm. Which I always quite appreciated, to be honest with you. Apparently all the science in the new Flash series is all real. Is it? Apparently. Oh, cool. The new Flash series is good. It is. Oh, it's one of the best of the new 52, that. Uh, also on page 11, the first real shot of Spider-Man swinging this issue, and as with every shot of Spider-Man in this issue, McFarlane puts it in the back of the net. Uh, this is especially effective because it's got one of those photo backgrounds that I just mentioned. Mm. It's a really good panel, that. Really like that. Well, page 13... Uh, where he mentions stopping off at the Fantastic Four to pick up something. Yeah, he does that completely off yeah. panel, doesn't he? If this were a contemporary comic, <laughs> it, it, it'd be the trip to the FF would have taken a whole issue showing him get the tell Reed he needs the gun, and then the rest retelling Secret Wars Nine. Oh, with with a few panels that are just repeated throughout. A few repeated panels and different dialogue. Panel one, Reed looks at Peter. Panel two, Peter looks at Reed. Panel <laughs> one, Reed looks at Peter. Speech bubble. So Peter. <laughs> you could write this stuff. I could, yeah. Page 14. Uh, there's a wonderful bunch of panels at the bottom of the page, which is similar to what you were just talking about. They are a bunch of repeated panels. But Peter is being followed. And Eddie changing clothes and persona as he's following him is really cool. Uh, when, when I was reading the trade, it's all ripped up. Uh, I thought this page was really cool after I realised that it was the same person in all four of the bottom panels. Mm. And I was so proud of myself after realising that after about seven rereads. You were six, dude. <laughs> That's perfectly acceptable as a six-year-old that you even got it. There's probably adults who'd look at that and go, don't get comics, don't they? It's supposed to read them. Why, why is there only detail on, on one person in each panel? Gee. Page 17. <clears throat> MJ takes a top off for Peter's private photography session. And there's a god-awful double entendre on the next page about slowly Peter's spirits begin to rise. 
just rise up. Spirits aren't the only things that are rising. Uh, no. And then on the next page, Aunt May makes a reference to how healthy and glowing they both are. Wow. Gee. <laughs> Christening the house before they've even moved in. Also on page 18, Nathan Lebensky's a huge grouch. Who following is it? Tom DeFalco would portray Nathan Lebensky as a bit of a grouch, and Roger Stern made him more avuncular. He was Aunt May's boyfriend of the time right. that she met in a, a nursing home, I think. When he first met May, he was a real breath of fresh air. Yeah. He was really go getting and belied his age, and then slowly subsequent writers just turned him into a grumpy old man. He died in Amazing Spider-Man 336. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, maybe I made it. Uh, page 18. Stay with Peter, where you belong? That's your note. Yeah. <laughs> so I never knew who he was when I was reading it. Oh, right. Maybe he was just... The, a grumpy old dude. Yeah. And I found out he was scum later, and I was like, ah. He, doesn't he have bad gambling debts? He has gambling, so he steals off at me. Yeah, I thought that was something like that. Uh, page 18. Stay with Peter where you belong. Don't stay with me, woman. Go to the kitchen where you belong. <laughs> Why do you think they would belong in the kitchen? Are you being sexist again? I'm not. I'm, I'm joking. I'm, I'm not sexist. <laughs> Your girlfriend won't let you be. Oh, page no, 21. About it. That's fair enough. Page 21. Eddie Brock kills a young police officer who is drawn to be no more than 22 or 23 years old. And in fact, bears a striking resemblance to Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. Do you know what I think? Uh, in later years, Marvel would try and turn this character into a hero. Would they? Yes. Why? Because he became so popular and so oversaturated and spun him off into numerous books. They, they made him a hero with a code of honour. Even this after he died. This guy who's just killed a 20-year-old kid. Oh, wait, you mean Venom? Yeah. I thought you meant the... Tw- the... No, the kid's <laughs> dead, dude. <laughs> I was just going to say. Dead, dead Zed. Zed's dead, baby. Uh, well, page 20 and 21. Reading this story as a child really creeped me out because of Eddie's talking to himself and referring <laughs> to himself as Oz and Way. And was so insane that it was, to me, scarier than the Joker. Was it? Mm. I don't find the Joker scary. He's funny and... Insane. In, in, in most writers' hands, he's just there to kill off people and to give Batman a challenge. Mm. He's, he's very rarely scary. To me, yeah, no. That's One of the few times I've read an issue and just gone, oh, let's put that away. Yeah, burn it, burn it with fire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I always thought Venom in this was scaring the Joker, and the murder in this creeped me out because of the two panels of Eddie shooting the web, and then the panel of the guy being choked to death. Oh yeah. The, however, if this would affect me so much that I would end up being disappointed at any death scene that was any lesser than a full splash page of Black Hand blowing his brains out all over mm, his dead family. Yeah. Now what frightened me even more though was that Eddie didn't like murdering innocent people but was willing to do it. But he did it anyway. Yeah. See I think that's far more effective than the Black Hand thing. Yeah. Because you don't actually see anything. You do it. You see him being smothered and then him falling to the floor. He's snapping his neck first. Well, but there's no... What's it? There's no on-screen gore like there is with the black hand. Yeah. I can see why it got to you as a kid, to be honest. I mean, I was a bit older than you when I read it. I was 15 and you were 6. Well, I wasn't scared of this. I was a big man. No, 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 I wasn't that's a big not man. wrong with that. <laughs> Page 22 and 23, there's a moving in scene where Peter and Mary Jane are moving into their new digs. The guy with the huge mohawk and ambush bug t-shirt... Did you notice that? He's wearing an ambush bug t-shirt. Really likes Harry Osborne's hair. 
amused me no end. I love that Flash is wearing a Gumby t-shirt. And MJ's friends seem awfully out of Peter's league, don't they? Yeah. Money-wise. Flash would become would become Venom. Yes, ironically. Yeah. Although it's not really ironic, because he's not really in this issue much. Not really. But yeah, Flash would, would ultimately become the Venom at the minute, isn't he? Mm. In the series that's currently going on. I noticed Candy, Randy and Bambi don't do anything but stand around holding large wood. Candy, Randy and Bambi. Do you remember, do you know who they were? No. Candy, Randy and Bambi were Peter's neighbours at the Chelsea Street apartment. Okay. Because after they moved in, they were forever sunbathing on the roof. Right. Which made him getting in and out of Spider-Man awkward. Fair enough. So he was always having to avoid Candy, Randy and Bambi. Okay. Which was just a stupid name for most of them. Page 26 through 29. Uh, I will say I acknowledge that Eddie is certifiable. Although whether he was mad before the symbiote merged with him or if this is a result of that isn't made terribly clear, is it? No. Whether he was insane beforehand. But this story makes no sense. If Eddie was half the journalist that he says he is, then this story wouldn't have ruined his career. If anything, it would make him more in demand because he could sell his story about how he was taken in by this loser pretending to be the Sin Eater. It's not like Eddie made the story up. No. The guy came to him and confessed... So Eddie didn't make up a story which would have ruined his career. He reported something he thought was genuine at the time that he reported it. Reporters have done worse than that and not ruined their career. Mm. Secondly, what happened to the guy who pretended to be the Sin Eater? Don't know. He just gets conveniently forgotten, doesn't he? Or has Eddie killed him, do you think, by this point? He he might have done. Yeah, he might have. Out for revenge. Yeah, dropped him somewhere. Um, Thirdly, how is this in any way Spider-Man's fault? Spider-Man gets blamed for everything. Yeah, but Eddie's motivations are really, really thin, especially for a major supervillain. Even other characters who have no personal connection with Spider-Man, like Molten Man or Electro, at least have a reason to hate him that it's more realistic than this. At least those guys have been thrown in jail by him. Eddie actively seeks Spider-Man out for no reason whatsoever. Mm. Spider-Man didn't ruin his career. This is not Spider-Man's fault. Now, you could argue that being merged with the symbiote fueled all this hatred, but Eddie hates Spider-Man before he merges with the symbiote. It seems to me that Eddie would be far better off cashing in on his notoriety or hating the real Sin Eater than Spider-Man. He could go on Oprah and tell his bloody story, couldn't he? She'd probably be falling over herself to have him on the show. The panel of Eddie stretching Spider-Man's neck, Looney Tunes style, on page 28. Really funny. For some reason, that, that, that panel always creeped me out. Did it? Yeah. I always thought that was funny. But, but you know, having pointed all that out now, yeah. you've just kind of ruined my favourite Spider-Man story. I've not ruined it. Yeah, it well, still no, works I'm, I'm, as a story. I'm going to be reading this down and going, no, that doesn't make any sense, because why would you go after Spider-Man? <laughs> it is, that is one of the true problems of analysing things for a show. Yeah. Because you're paying more attention than perhaps you would normally. You start spotting things and then you go, wait a minute. <laughs> um, I mean, the fight scene at the end is really funny. Especially Spidey hitting Venom with a girder, which is hysterical. I always love people hitting people with girders. I don't know why, I just find it funny. On page 38, it gets a tiny bit silly. Because Spidey breaks one arm free of the webbing and then he grabs a hold of the clapper with his arm. Why would he have to do that? Could he not just let the clapper hit the palm of his hand and then stick to it? Because he's Spider-Man. Maybe. Would it not pull him out the same? Or would the laws of physics not work that way? Would Spider-Man just keep the clapper there rather than it pulling away? 
depend on how strong the web yeah it depends was. how strong the web is and how strong the clapper is and what speed it's moving there's all of that physics I suppose you'd have to take into account as Donovan Morgan Grant would say science but I, I don't know how that works um, on page 39 Spidey says that if he stays though the bells may kill him why? Peter survived the bells in Web of Spider-Man number one when he had to do this exact same thing. So why not do it again? Now, I'll give you that how he does actually defeat Venom is pretty cool. Mm. And hauling him off to the FF makes sense. It all works out at the end, I think. I still think this is a fun issue. I don't think me nitpicking it has ruined it. It's still fun. It's still a good read. There's a few flaws in logic, but you can overlook that. The art's excellent in places, and this is probably the last time a new villain would get introduced who would go on to become a major league bad guy. Venom would appear in his own title, cartoons, movie, and merchandising galore, becoming majorly overexposed in the process. Michelini peppers the issue with a few subplots. The reason the Parkers get the condo so quickly will be explained in issue 314. And Venom will return to bedevil Spidey in issues 316, and then seemingly every other issue throughout the 90s. The cover will be redrawn and repurposed to feature Spidey's red and blue costume for issue 301, and there's also a one-page text piece by Stanley that he just turns into a huge plug for the Masterworks. Okay. That isn't in your trade paperback. Okay. But other than that, it is a pretty fun issue. What did you think of it? I liked it. You love this one, don't you? That's why I picked it. I do give some thought to you every now and again, you know. Every now and again. Every now and again, I will give you some thought. When you look to the sky and the moon is blue. He's <laughs> like blue cream cheese. We're going to have a quick break because my voice is hurting and we'll be right back. Clouds of war gather ominously over Europe. The Great Depression grips the world. But one globe-trotting archaeologist's thirst for adventure and discovery remains undaunted by his times. Stan Lee presents... The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, now a regular feature on Star Wars Monthly Monday, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. And we're back. Yeah, very good. Uh, the second of our celebratory issues of The Amazing Spider-Man comes from the spin-off book Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, which we went into great detail about, was it last week or the week before? I don't remember anymore. Anyway, we went into detail on a previous show, so we're not going to bore you again with it this week. Uh, This comic dropped the Peter Parker, becoming simply the spectacular Spider-Man in issue 134. Coincidentally, the second Sin Eater story. See, you think I throw this stuff together? Oh, no! No! There's a very definite element of luck that makes it seem like it's all planned out, when in fact, I just throw it together. Yeah. Uh, it is issue number 200 of that August publication that we will be looking at today. Issue 200 
is in fact the culmination of a number of subplots that have been bubbling in the background of writer J.M. DiMatteis's run since he started with issue 178. DiMatteis has been slowly developing a plot line in which Harry Osborn starts cracking up again following the Inferno crossover. Harry ingested a new, improved version of the Goblin Serum, which succeeded in making him stronger, but also more insane than ever. These subplots trotted along until the 30th anniversary issue, number 189, which, if you're interested, I covered alongside Michael Bailey on a very special episode of his show, Views from the Long Box. Go and check it out. He's also doing a Spider-Man celebration. I don't think he's doing a month. Yeah. May end up being a bit longer. May end up being a bit shorter. I don't know how Mike's going to cut up his episodes. Uh, But anyway, in that issue, Harry makes it quite clear he's going to reveal Peter's secret identity. Just not yet. Wait, so... You covered the first part of this story in another show? No, I covered issue 189, which was over nearly a year prior to this. This storyline, Di Matteis had bubbling in the background for his two years that he was writing the book. He would only stay on for another two issues or three issues after this for the Maximum Clonage saga. Maximum Carnage, sorry. Maximum Clonage is another story. Yep. And then he quit the book. Mm -hmm. So, essentially, this is the culmination of two years' worth of plot. Oh, okay. Um, Spectacular Spider-Man 200 came out on March 23rd, 1993 with a May cover date. The cover is typically 90s in that it's enhanced with a silver background that is shiny. So very shiny. But it looks good. It does. It is. As 90s covers go, it's awesome. I let's be honest, some of those enhanced covers were pretty damn cool. Yeah. The hologram covers for Spidey's 30th anniversary are brilliant. Are they? The hologram cover on that which no web of Spider-Man that I won on eBay today from the middle of the clone so he's at 125 yeah. is cack what, what, what is it yeah me and Michael it arrived it arrived in the post today and I'm unwrapping them because I'm now only one issue away from completing my clone saga there's a couple of spin-off Whoa. mini-series that I don't have yet but I've one issue from completing the main books and we're looking at this cover Michael and I after I took it out like the envelope and we're looking at the 3D hologram disc yeah. what the is this supposed to be? It's like a 3D dot. <laughs> it's cactus. So it's got dirt on your hologram. Oh dear me, it's bloody crap. Um, anyway, because this cover was cardstock, it doesn't flop around, and the silver background is embossed with lots of webs. The actual art is truly magnificent. Salvastemmer art of Spider-Man battling the Green Goblin. Michael's doing a Ralph Harris impression. <laughs> Because the cover is cardstock, he can he can play the didgeridoo. Don't. What is that cardstock? Yeah. Um, I have an accent then. Yes, very good. He's he's Australian. No, I mean you had an accent. Did I? When you said cardstock. Did I? You Maybe you stu- doing a Rolf Harris impression made me talk Australian. <laughs> Come with me with the didgeridoo, and I'll show you how we do Where things is can- down under. <laughs> Where's my kangaroo down, sport? Where's my kangaroo down? As actions go, that's not one of my worst. Surprisingly. <laughs> Which says a great deal, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, God, I hope we don't have any Australia. If we do, I'm sorry. I'm very, very sorry. Uh, the story in this issue was a whopping 41 pages entitled The Best of Enemies. Today this would be called Frenemies, wouldn't it? It's, uh, yeah. Paul Rudd as Peter Parker and Zach Galifianakis as Harry Osborn. The issue was written by J. Mark DiMatteis, drawn by Sal Buscema. Um, I went through the 80s thinking our pal Sal Buscema was a crap artist. I thought his art was workmanlike, it did the job, but it, it was boring. It looked very 
Tim Seeley podcast. Yeah, well, that's the, the what's it. I, I found out from interviews with people that the reason for this was in the 70s Marvel would give Sal tons of assignments because he was quick and reliable and he got the work done on time in the 70s alone he worked on the Hulk, Captain America, Thor Spider-Man, the Defenders, Cull Marvel 2-in-1, the Avengers Son of Satan, Master of Kung Fu Nova, Rom, Tarzan Conan, Battlestar Galactica and the Fantastic Four no wonder the guy was doing a lot of work. He was knackered. That could have just been one issue per month, though. Oh, look, Kirby, you know. Oh. Could turn out that level of work. This did have the side effect of him making a few shortcuts. Here, Buscema is unleashed, doing both full pencils and inks. His art has a very scratchy look to it that's very appealing. Like Michael says, it's got a Tim Sale, Klaus Janssen appeal. Oh, I think this is better than Janssen. Well, yeah. Fr- Janssen's very hot and cold for us, isn't he? Mm. Sometimes he's, he's on. And then there's other times you're like, no, I don't like this. Go away, showcase. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's not a McFarlane clone, which at this point in the 90s with the breaths of fresh air, he never tried to change his art to suit the times like Herb Trimpey did in Fantastic Four. He simply just did good work. He continued on Spectacular Spider-Man for a bit after this and then just turned to inking, working on the Spider-Girl book. Buscema's largely retired now but he still does conventions and sketches and will on occasion come out of retirement for special projects and anniversaries like he's recently been this with the Hulk didn't he yeah. and he's currently and working on G.I. Joe for IDW and the Universal stuff he, he did for Islands of Adventure was good and he did three panels in the Bendis <coughs> Avengers which three whole panels three whole panels yeah when you stand in the, that circle thing with the spikes in the floor yeah. that's all Sal Buscema artwork isn't it mm-hmm. yeah all that is really good which you can see on Facebook yeah you can have if you have a look on Facebook dad and Scott Gardner yeah there's pictures of me and Scott uh, showing your legs yeah scandal <laughs> flashing our manly thighs yeah <laughs> Uh, the other people involved in this are Letra Rosen, as Chris Honeywell called him, colorist Bob Sharon, editor Rob Tokar, group editor Danny Fingeroth, and editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco. The story to this one, MJ is kidnapped by the Green Goblin under cover of night. The Green Goblin in this case is Harry Osborn, son of the original Goblin, Norman Osborn, and he takes Mary Jane to the Brooklyn Bridge where Gwen Stacy was killed. But he's not going to kill her. He loves her. Harry is simply trying to recapture simpler times when he and Peter and Gwen and MJ would just drive around and live. MJ says they all have their own pain, especially after Norman killed Gwen. Harry snaps and says it was all a setup. Peter and Spider-Man are responsible for that. But MJ needn't worry. Whatever happens between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin, he won't hurt her. So she asks, then why won't he just take her home? Spider-Man arrives home later, fearing the worst, but when he sees the Green Goblin in his home with his wife, he snaps. MJ pleads with him to stop, and Harry removes the mask, saying that Peter is already to believe the worst. Harry takes his leave, and MJ and Peter argue, the stress getting to them. Harry returns home, his fever becoming worse, and he threatens Liz. After his fever breaks, he continues his passive-aggressive reign of terror. He drops down to see Peter in the daytime, pays a visit to J. Jonah Jameson to set up a charitable organisation in his father's name, and promises to sweeten the deal for Jonah by giving him information about Spider-Man. Harry's taunting of Peter continues, and Spider-Man confronts him. The Goblin reveals that he plans to drive Peter insane without lifting a finger. Over the next few weeks, Harry builds up his charitable foundation in his father's name, whilst continuing his non-physical abuse of Peter. Slowly, Peter, and by extension Spider-Man, is starting to be ground down by Harry's relentless hounding, and come to the realisation that Harry needs to be stopped. MJ tries to reason with Harry, but Spider-Man shows up and blows the whole gig. After a brief McFightenstein, Spidey realises that this time they are too evenly matched, and tries to reason with Harry. 
The goblin injects Spider-Man with a drug and says that he's had enough. He decides to end it all and takes Spider-Man with him. To this end, he's rigged the apartment block to blow. Of course, Mary Jane and little Normie Osborne, Harry's son, pick this moment to show up and Spider-Man appeals to Harry's better instinct and he rescues them. Spider-Man struggles to his feet but passes out just as the building is about to blow when Harry bursts in and saves him. Carrying Spider-Man outside, MJ thanks him, but Harry collapses and dies. <laughs> that's, that's what happens, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. It's like, oh, I'm dead now. <laughs> it's like the end of Revenge of the Sith, where Padme dies for reasons of plot. Yeah. Padme dies, why? Because she does! And it's the same. She died because she lost the will to live. Oh, what are we now, poets? <laughs> Let's get on our hands and knees and pray. Where did you get your doctorate? Dr. Ball, MD. <laughs> um, pages one through three. Whilst the art is great and does carry the story admirably, we see one of the problems with the 90s era post-marriage Spider-Man. In these two issues that we've picked tonight, both of them have begun with the central antagonist terrorising Murray Jane. Murray Jane was never a victim in the pre-marriage days. Hell, MJ rarely got involved with the Spider-Man part of the strip at all. That was more Betty Brant and Gwen Stacy's gig. Okay. It was. MJ and Gwen stay see like Betty and Veronica. Yes. Okay. Kind of like Betty and Veronica. See how I made that work? MJ and Gwen stay Yeah. See. You, you, you totally made that work. I know. You keep thinking that. I'm, I'm gonna. Page four. Little Naomi Osborne's one. Well, creepy... Yeah. Mother, mother fun loving kid and he spider man is bad <laughs> kill the spider spider death killing um, spider maybe the Osborne family are just naturally insane and they didn't really need the goblin gonna, serum I'm gonna say kill spider all the time even though every time I've picked up in every issue that you've ever read I'm holding this spider man toy that I'm bending in half and breaking his neck because he has it in the next issue we cover he does he has it all the time um, there's a great shot of spider man in the last panel of that page though Orange Man. Well, he's reflected off the, the sun going down or the moon coming up or whatever. I love it. I think it's a great panel. I love the colouring on it as well. I think it's really good. Page four. Where did Harry go? Tell me, Liz, or I'll hit you like a hit Murray Jane. He's not a hit Murray Jane yet. He and almost, he never, he almost and he does. never did. Almost No, does. that's been retconned. In this issue? Shut up. We don't talk about that. Page five. Yeah. It's a big city. Millions of people. What are the chances of the two of them meeting? Oh crap, I forgot there'd be no story if they didn't. No. <laughs> well, you could argue that he's stalking her. Yeah. I suppose. You, you could argue that. I'm sure you can get arrested for that. Um, I suppose you can, yeah. I mean, you know technically, that, this is kidnap. Well, you know that uh, Green Goblin bloke? Yeah, he's kind of stalking her. Oh, we'll just arrest him then. Nah, Peter, there's no laws against uh, going for a walk in tights. Oh no, but there's laws against stalking. We're here to arrest you now. <laughs> oh no! Maybe they didn't think that through. Well, yeah. The midsection because I couldn't be bothered counting the page numbers. Uh, Di Matteis really was an excellent psychological writer. He gets an awful lot of mileage from the scenes on the Brooklyn Bridge between MJ and Harry. Harry's confused, switching between nostalgic yearnings for a past that may not actually have happened, and anger in between sentences. Interestingly, he never uses violence against Murray Jane. In contrast to the scene later on with his wife Liz, where he pins her against the wall by the throat... Mm. And this is all juxtaposed later with an MJ Peter scene where Peter and MJ are brought to despair by Harry's passive aggressive behaviour. MJ started smoking just to cope with the stress, and he even suggests Peter just come clean with his secret identity so Harry has nothing over them. Oddly, there is a picture 
here of a conveniently left open photo album that has a photo of Peter and Harry and it looks like it's them as kids doesn't it yeah Peter didn't meet Harry till they were in college okay I would I, I can't believe that Dematis made a goof of that I can only presume that the art looks like the children yeah when really they're not I presume mm-hmm. I could be reading too much into that uh, continuity cop wise this takes place after the events of the last issue we just covered Amazing Spider-Man 300 Peter and MJ were evicted from Bedford Towers after it turned out they only got the place due to MJ's obsessed fan Jonathan Caesar they moved into the apartment above Liz and Harry Osborne Harry and Liz met at the marriage of Betty Brown to Ned Leeds in Amazing Spider-Man 156 eloped and got married and then gave birth to little Naomi Osborne in Amazing Spider-Man 263 you're glad I went to all the effort of checking all this out, aren't you? Oh, I do like the bit earlier where Peter just comes in, finds um, Harry that punches him, and then Harry just stands still, takes his um, mask off and just leaves. Yeah. <laughs> Bye then. It's like, wow, I, I was only to say hello. <laughs> Thanks for that, Pete. <laughs> I thought we were friends. Uh, the scene where the Green Goblin shows up on the streets later on, following on from that, just talking to Peter is priceless. The goblin makes no move on him and he even points out there's no law against wearing a colourful costume. He follows this up with a visit to Jonah which is wonderfully written. Everything Harry says has a double meaning to both the audience and Peter but Jonah's completely oblivious and there's some great humour as Jonah actually hides behind Peter but calls Peter a coward for not doing something Mm. against the green goblin and then he bravely yells out the window after the goblin after he's left. Well done, Jonah. What a guy. I laugh in the face of danger, and then I run and hide and wait for it to pass. (laughs) (laughs) The body language is great on this page. Peter stands ramrod stretched, staring at Harry stony-faced. Harry, as the goblin shoots around Jonah's office, spinning upside down and generally acting like a small child with ADHD. Uh, There's a scene in the middle of the book where Norman just sits talking to a portrait of Norman that is pretty much lifted for the first Sam Raimi movie except Norman talks to himself and then Harry will talk to the deceased Norman in Spider-Man 2 there's a lot of that in the films yeah. and it's, it's it's almost verbatim from this I don't, I don't like it when you're on portraits like that why? well because it wouldn't be like that if it's at that angle then it would be 3D yes for the, for the, the, the yeah, image I see what you're saying. From our image. point of view, we wouldn't be able to see that picture as clearly as that yeah. from that angle. It just looked like there's a man in a mirror behind the wall. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he is. <laughs> Maybe it's like a Harry Potter portrait. Once they die, they appear in a portrait and they can talk to you. Oh no, this, this is him waiting and biding his time for the Clone Saga. Yes, from Europe. Yeah. Where he was hiding out oh, all yeah. this time. Yeah, okay. Am I the only one who thought it was a bit dubious that Spider-Man broke into Harry's apartment to search through his stuff? Isn't that breaking an entry? Yeah. I mean, he doesn't steal anything, but that's not really the point. But are we not getting to the thing where Harry's not doing anything but he's driving Peter to do something? Yes. Peter is cracking up at this point, arguably just as much as Harry is. Uh, He's just paranoid. (laughs) Yes. He's getting very paranoid at this point. The final fight scene's wonderfully rendered by Buscema, expertly written by J.M. DeMatteis, with but two minor problems. One's a niggle. Um, Harry injects Peter 
with a drug that shoots a spike out of the palm of his hand. Where is that spike located? It comes straight out of the palm of his hand, right? Yeah. Okay. So the art implies that it was stuck in the middle of Harry's palm. Whoa! Retractable. So, what, from inside his hand? No, um, you know, like how a lightsaber toys. But it's not segregated. It's one long thing. The art isn't clear. Is, is that what you, you think? Can see the, you can see the segregations if you look carefully. Can you really? Yeah. If this was in high def? Yep. 3D. <laughs> 3D. Pull that hand right out I, and you zoom in. See, you know, this thing does bug me. It really does. Because it could be really easily corrected with a redrawn panel. If you make the spike come from his wrist, like Spider-Man's web shooters. Dun, 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 dun. Yes. Why are you doing James Bond now? Because Stan with a shoe. Yes! That, but that's from Russia with Love now. The 007 music doesn't play that. Doesn't it? But that's me just being nitpicky. Um, <laughs> again? Again, yeah. The second problem is actually in the structure of the story. Whilst it's possible that Harry's death was foreshadowed in previous issues, I have to confess I didn't reread everything in the run up to doing this. Um, it isn't set up here. Whilst we are quite clearly shown that the serum has affected Harry's mind and physical prowess, there's no indication in the story itself that it's going to kill him. This is a story about redemption, and the, specifically the redemption of Harry Osborn. And it achieves that goal admirably, and as such there's absolutely no reason for Harry to die at the end, other than the writer wanted Harry to die at the end. I thought that's what it was getting to. Did you? Reading this, seeing him push himself and then collapse at times, and lose his way at times, I thought that's what it was getting at. See, I didn't get that he was dying from this. I thought it was getting to him and making him slightly mad. I didn't get that it was killing him. So maybe that's just me. I mean, if you did get that and you've only read this, yeah. it's entirely possible it's just me. I mean, they could have just had Harry collapse into a coma and he could have just waited for another writer to come along who wanted to do with him. Because it is beautifully written and very sad. But at the same time, the death of Harry left a hole in the Spider-Man supporting cast that it never really recovered from. And it's another prime example of thinking a decision through before killing off a character that's been part of the book for longer than most of the readership's been alive. Mm. They missed Harry. Because Flash wasn't in it a lot at this point. So suddenly Peter had no friends. Okay. Um, I have mixed feelings about this issue. See, on one hand, it's a good issue that has a different approach to the Green Goblin, which I quite liked. Yes. With him being a decent guy. Kind of. Kind of. A bit of a nut job. Funny. But um, but on the other hand, it just felt wrong. See, I picked this issue up, having not read the issues before, and I see MJ smoking. Peter shouting and throwing things about like a domestic abuse suspect, and Harry Osborn <laughs> strangle his wife. Hmm. And all these characters just felt wrong and not who they were supposed to be. Well, Liz is a bit of a doormat in this. I mean, it's an interesting point. I mean, like I say, you had two years of build-up to this. Yeah. And I think this issue does stand alone, but I did get raked over the coals by Stephen for criticising the X-Men issue because I felt it was a piece of crap that didn't stand on its own. But as a whole, yeah. it's supposedly, the X-Men is supposedly some of Morrison's best stuff. It's good. So, so it, I can see your point that if you were just coming straight into this issue, suddenly MJ's smoking for no reason and Peter's all stressed out, you've not had the two years of build-up no. to this. Where it has, it's not been long, continuous story, it's just been subplots with occasional punctuated bursts like 189 with the, the last confrontation with Harry. Yeah. But I get your point. 
I take what you're saying on board. Harry would, of course, be resurrected in Brand New Day. Never to be seen again. That started an Amazing Spider-Man on 546, where he's been divorced from Liz and estranged from Normie. He'll pop up around the various Spider titles for a few years before disappearing with his second son, Stanley, after the American Son story arc and hasn't been seen since. He's going to come back after Spider-Man dies and say that he's a real clone. <laughs> uh, in Tom DeFalco's alternate future depicted in the Spider-Girl series, little Normie Osborn runs Oscorp. And although the old Osborn insanity rears its head occasionally, he was basically on the side of the air. That's going to be it. Normie's going to show up as Green Goblin saying that, that Harry Osborn's dead and he needs to stop Norman Osborn after this whole siege crap. And then he kills Norm, ha- Norman Osborn and then runs Oscorp. You should run Marvel Comics. I know, right? Mm. This is an almost advertisement-free issue. It doesn't even have a letters page. However, <laughs> the hot comics ads are back. The ETM mega-hits this time around are... Adventures of Superman 500, which was the epilogue to World Without a Superman, or the prologue to Reign of the Superman, depending on your point of view, and other instant classics such as Cyberspace 3000 Issue 1, which had a glow-in-the-dark cover. How passe. Oh, for go- How passe. Mm-hmm. Image Plus Issue Number 1, 2099 Unlimited Issue Number 1, Shadowhawk 2 Issue 1, none of which I've ever read, and various different trading cards and trade paperbacks. Todd McFarlane taught himself how to write by getting other people to script Spawn for a few issues, and this month was Frank Miller's turn. <laughs> getting Neil Gaiman in didn't work out too well for him, did it? Not really. Self-confessed champion of creators' rights, who went on to try and stiff Gaiman over creators' rights. Mm. Way to go, Todd. We don't even have to say allegedly, though, because it went to court and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Image Comics, because they're always my favourites. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the sense that I never actually read any. Rob Liffield did yeah. everything. Rob Liffield did everything. Uh, they had a ton of special deals in which you're allowed to buy three copies of such hot comics as Blood Strike, featuring a blood-embossed cover. So the artist <laughs> just cut his finger. Rob Liffield Rob slits his wrists over them. Another $600,000. Thank you very much. Just looks at those old Levi's jeans yeah. person. <laughs> suddenly angst-ridden. <laughs> oh, dear God. This is hot. Whilst Brigade has lots of death, but no cover enhancements and therefore won't be hot. <laughs> death Blow with its stunning black varnish cover. <laughs> it's a goth. Rob Liffield throwing his nail polish all over the This This will be hot. And Darker Image is both violent and will therefore be red hot. It's Rob Liffield pouring his black pegs all over that. <laughs> yeah. The Image Swimsuit Edition comes in 3D and has huge perpendicular Liffield boobs coming right at you. Rob Liffield's on Levi. <laughs> No, let's let's not go there. If it didn't have that, it should have done. I'm surprised nobody thought of that. Young Blood has a foil split fold cover, whatever the hell Royal that Liffield is. Snabbing it at knives, just ripping it apart. And it's hot. Burning it. <laughs> I, I hope you saved all these comics. I really do when you bought them originally, lovely listeners, because they will put your eldest son through college today. Alan Moore's pretentious piss-take of 60s Marvel Comics 1963 also came out this month, and it's my understanding they're going to make a movie out of it simply to piss Alan Moore off. That's, yeah, I, me and Singleton think that's the only reason 
they make Alan Moore movies anymore because they know it annoys him. Because they know it annoys him. Uh, DC didn't seem to have much that was hot other than the Superman stuff, but the Marvel 93 annuals are can't miss, apparently, and they come polybagged with limited edition rookie cards. What's a rookie card? I have no idea what a rookie card is. Uh, the 90s apparently so excessive, Wonder Man gets an annual. Yes. Wonder Man. Yes. Got an annual. Oh, the X-Men celebrated the 30th anniversary with a stunning hologram cover on X-Factor 92. Valiant had a number of hot titles, including Archer and Armstrong, Turok, Exo, Manowar, and others that at least don't sound as boring as the image Isn't books. Turok a game? I've, I think it is, yeah. Turok, Manowar's a game. Uh, and the rest of the page is just trading cards. Like dinosaurs, we don't have with dinosaurs. He's, he's Turok dinosaur hunter, isn't he? Uh, finally tonight... Our last issue is Amazing Spider-Man 400, which came out on Valentine's Day 1995 and boasts what can only be described as an epic fail of a cover enhancement. White noise. <laughs> it is. It's, it's terrible. Classic. Terrible, isn't it? Ostensibly, no, it's a gravestone with Spider-Man oh, and the title A Death in the Family on it what it actually resembles is a big old grey splodge of nothingness with a caramel nothing centre if you feel it because I know you like feeling my comics you can actually feel the title I feel like a blind person and Spider-Man yeah, well, braille. if Marvel's intent was to create the world's first braille comic book cover then well done them they succeeded in every other respect this is God, this is 90s cover enhancements at the worst. Yeah. I mean, it's fair enough, because we have covered one of the best. Uh, thankfully, the inside cover, a standard hero shot by Mark Bagley. Bagley hated this. Uh, yes, everybody hated it. Apparently, when it came out, everyone thought, what the hell is this? Yeah. Uh, need, um, some of Liffield's uh, nail polish. <laughs> well, I'm just paint over it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, the standard hero shot of Mark Bagley and Larry Malstead that they do on the inside front cover is much better. I like the one on the back. Uh, well, I was just going to say the one on the back is Spider-Man stood of the Parker gravestone in the moonlight, which is also better, even if Spider-Man's feet disappear into nothingness. He's teasing who it is. Yes, it's very good, that, isn't it? Mm. Uh, the, the feet disappearing is, is obviously Bagley homaging Liffield. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it's deliberate, I'm sure. Why, because there's no feet there? Because there's no feet there. Actually, no, if he was homaging Liffield, it'd be triangles. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't get this when it came out. I was on another one of my hiatuses from comics. Another one? Another one of my I'm Too Mature to be Reading Comics phases. Well, that and the Peter Parker's parents stuff just completely turned me off the Spider-Man books. Uh, I dropped Spider-Man with issue 393. I'm still trying to fill in some of those Clone Saga issues today. I'm missing one issue of Web of Spider-Man now. Okay. To complete the run. 129, I think. I'm sure it'll be money well spent. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the whole thing when I've got it all. So far. Uh, looking over what else was released the month that I quit, I was reading one Marvel book by this point, The Incredible Hulk. None of the 15 X titles, four Punisher titles, 11 other Spider-Man books, or, perhaps most disturbingly, <laughs> the two Barbie titles were really interesting me. DC was throwing a bit better. Zero Hour was happening this month, so I was reading all the Superman and Batman books. Sandman, Shade the Changing Man, and Zero Hour, the miniseries, I read all of that. And just for you, okay. on a Grant Morrison-related note, The Invisibles issue one started in September of 94. All of those that you mentioned are really good. Yes, that, that's where I was, again, I was in more of a DC phase than a Marvel phase mm -hmm. at this point. Uh, when issue 400 came out, I was still only reading one Marvel comic, The Hulk, but over at DC, Preacher number one debuted. Woo, -hoo. Woo and indeed who? 
after the additional cover that makes up for the piss poor actual cover there's an index page with the titles of the stories and the creative teams as this is an anniversary issue there are three stories all of them written by J.M. DeMatteis with different artists the index page also has another wonderful shot by Mark Bagley then there's a one page text piece by Stan which is very disappointing because it reads as though all he's done is pulled out the file he'd saved in Word 3.1, edited it, sent to the Marvel offices and checked, cashed the check, as it's pretty much identical to the one he wrote for issue 300. Okay. Bit of judicious editing. I didn't read it. The inaugural story is The Gift, without by Mark Bagley and Larry Malstead. Letters are by Bill Oakley and colours are by Bob Sharon. Spider-Man races across town to the hospital where his Aunt May seems to have recovered from her recent coma sustained as a result of the ruse concerning Peter Parker's parents and the reason that Ben Riley returned to New York in the first place. She demands to be taken home the next day. Peter spots Ben in his guise as Scarlet Spider at the window and makes it known that he isn't welcome. With May looking to be on the up and up, Scarlet Spider can't help but agree with Peter. He should just pick up his bag and leave New York ASAP to the tingly tingly piano music of sadness, especially with Kane still pursuing him. The next day, Peter takes May back home to Forest Hills, where she immediately knows that Mary Jane is pregnant. She tells Peter that being a parent is the greatest responsibility, but grows fatigued. As MJ helps her up to bed, Scarlet Spider arrives saying he and Peter have to talk. For reasons known only to the writer, Peter puts on his Spider-Man costume and the two of them just stand in the bright daylight in May Parker's back garden and have a chat. Do you know why I think that was? Because other than this splash page... Spider-Man Spider-Man's not in this story. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like somebody's gone, oh, well, we, we kind of need Spider-Man to be in a story in the 400th issue. Mm. So he puts his costume on for no reason whatsoever. Ben says he's leaving and that Peter needs to seize this opportunity for happiness. Then he leaps a tall building in a single bound and he's gone. Later, Peter discusses Ben's departure with Mary Jane and she says he's not Peter and never will be because you can't clone a person's soul. A week later, Peter and May are atop the Empire State Building. May is becoming increasingly nostalgic for the past generally, and for Ben Parker in specific. Suddenly, May drops the bombshell. She asks Peter what it's like to fly over the city, to be Spider-Man. She's kind of missing the point in that Spider-Man doesn't actually fly, but I'll let that slide because she's dying. Peter very nearly collapses, but May calms him down and says it's fine. You're a good man, Peter, she says, and hugs him, and says she's proud of him and that Ben would be too. She sags a little in his arms, but says again that it's just fatigue, and they leave. Peter takes her home and gets her in bed. May has a fever and the doctor will check on her. May says no. This past week was a gift, she tells Peter. A chance for them to get their affairs in order and talk, but now it's her time. She's had a good life, but now she's tired. The scarlet spider is outside the window and Murray Jane and Aunt Anna arrive, but it's too late. May closes her eyes, and Peter remembers what she said on the Empire State Building and a book she would read to him as a child about flying. Peter wants her to fly. Second star to the right and straight on till morning. May Parker's funeral takes place a few days later with Peter and close friends and family. Ben Riley has no such support and drops by to pay his respects later, alone. He places a single red rose on her grave next to Ben Parker's.
later, after all the mourners have all left, Peter is arrested for murder and the Scarlet Spider introduces himself to Mary Jane. I quite like this one. Yeah. I really did. Uh, the first page of this issue is vertigo-inducing. Mark Bagley first came to prominence in the late 80s when he won Marvel's tryout book contest and swiftly became one of the best artists of the 90s. In fact, by pure coincidence, have I have a comic here that has an advert... The 1994 Fantastic Four Special Edition number one has an advert for the Marvel Comics tryout book. Okay. Right there, John Romita pages for you to ink and pencil and scripts and everything. Mark Bagley won that. They're not doing them anymore. Uh, no, I don't. Th- I certainly don't think they do it like that anymore. Uh, okay. To be honest with you, arguably, Blag- Blagley, arguably Bagley went on to become one of the single best artists in the business and possibly the best Spider-Man artist of the 90s. He went on to further hone his skills on Ultimate Spider-Man, a book he drew for 100 consecutive issues. In fact, he did more than 100 issues, didn't he? Didn't he stay for longer than Lee and Kirby's run on FF? It was around the... Was it 110? Yeah. Well, it was because of that that Bagley became the Spider-Man issue of my childhood. The Spider-Man artist of my childhood. Because of Ultimate Spider-Man? Because of Ultimate Spider-Man. Because over at Amazing Spider-Man, for the time I've been reading it, there hasn't been a definitive artist. No, Spider-Man's not had a, a definitive artist, arguably, since Ron Romita Jr. Because mm. Burns' run was a damp squib. Yeah. And then then Romita Jr. came back. Yeah. But he kind of already established his reputation at that point. And then there was... Diodato did some, didn't Diodato. he? Ron Garney did some. Anyone else? They had a few different artists. They had a few different artists for the end of Straczynski stuff, yeah. yeah. And then they had that rotating artist thing after Brand New Day. So like you say, there was no definitive artist. And now it's it's Humberto Ramos. But he keeps dropping. He doesn't seem able to do a consistent run, does he? There's only about two or three artists at the moment. Yeah, so I would argue after Ramita Jr., Mark Bagley really is the only definitive artist for Spider-Man since the 90s. Yeah. That's a good point, that. I hadn't really considered that. Well, does Peter not like Ben or something here? Because Ben shows up and then Peter glows at him. And the next time we see each other, they shout at each other. No, they're not best pals to start off with. But if you think about it, it's true in real life. When you meet somebody who's exactly the same as you, you don't get along. Your friends all have to be slightly different from you, even if they've got the same interests. And okay. these two are essentially the same person. Yeah. So they're going to get on each other's nerves, to be honest with you. Stepping on each other's lines. Yeah. Uh, Kane, as mentioned in here very briefly, has been in pursuit of Ben Riley, a.k.a. the Scarlet Spider, would turn out to be the first failed clone of Peter Parker made by Professor Warren, but the degeneration took effect, ending any hope he had at a real life. The degeneration also twisted his powers in a way that makes him stronger than either Ben or Peter. So there's a third clone of Peter Parker wandering around. You confused yet? Sure. No, 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 it'll get much worse. I'm not confused with this one. This one's big and square and has a big beard and long hair. Yes, pretty much. There's a number of subplots bubbling along here that I didn't mention in the synopsis because there didn't seem to be much point, to be honest. There's a cameo by the Jackal to remind us he's still institutionalised and an appearance by another Peter Parker clone and Dr. Judas Traveller. And all of this stuff gets a hell of a lot more confusing before it gets any better. But as we're not a Clone Saga podcast, I direct you to Clone well, Saga Chronicles for that. Well, we've got Clone Saga issues we've covered. We've already covered two. Three. Three? Klaus Janssen one. Which class down so The first one of... Oh, Sensational Zero? Yeah. The Dan Jurgens one? Yeah, I'm not counting that because it's not part of Spider-Man month. 
So that doesn't count. My gaff, my rules. Okay. <laughs> um, we're just going to gloss over their appearances and move on to what is probably the single most important story that has ever been published in a Spider-Man comic up to this point <laughs> after Amazing Fantasy 15. Why do you not agree with that? What, without this issue being important? At the time that it was published... Oh, the time that it was... The death of May Parker is probably the single most important issue of this book since Amazing Fantasy 15. Well... Ah, ah, that's my opinion. To who? It isn't this another... If a tree falls and... <laughs> Nobody's there to hear it. If May Parker dies but no one's reading Spider-Man at this point because it's crap. Everyone was reading it. The was Clone it? Saga sold really well. This is a common misconception that Clone Saga tanked sales. It didn't. The Clone Saga continually rose sales. That's why they carried it on for so long. Spider-Man was booking the trend. While other sales were falling off, books like The Incredible Hulk were almost cancelled, Heroes Reborn, and all of that drivel, Spider-Man, sales were going up. The Clone Saga boosted sales. Bottom line. And I've said it before, that this whatever you think about the Clone Saga, despite its many, many, many problems, and I'm not an apologist for that story, (laughs) every single criticism you can lay against the Clone Saga is valid. It's absolutely true. It went on too long. It's baggy. There was no direction. There was no one clear vision. They didn't know how it was going to end. It's not Nightfall or Death and Return of Superman, which at least had a very clear ending. And they knew where they were going before they started doing it. All of the criticisms are valid. But... It gave closure to Peter Parker's storyline. And this was a major part of that. May's death is exceptionally well written and very moving. Mm. Whatever your opinion of May Parker, Demathis did her proud in this story. The revelation that she knew Peter was Spider-Man is handled really sensitively. And although clearly a retcon... It's told with such a deft hand that I bought into it totally. I even welled up a bit reading this. Did you? I don't mind admitting it. <laughs> and I love the quote at the end, the second star on the right and straight until morning from Peter Pan. Okay. I just thought that was lovely. But that's just me. See, I have the knowledge of hindsight and know it's an actress. Yes, yes, with the benefit of hindsight, which we'll come into in a minute, this uh, this issue has completely rendered null and void. Hindsight has rendered all of this null and void. Yes. Straczynski yes. has rendered this all null and void. Yes. Well, that wasn't his decision, though, was it? No. That was Marvel's I, decision. I, I, I noticed that Bagley draws everyone but May exactly the same as their ultimate version. Yeah, May Parker's a lot younger in the ultiverse, isn't she? Yeah. I don't, I don't know I think honest, but Mary Jane looks the same Mary Jane looks the same I would argue Peter doesn't quite look the same Peter in this looks like his dad in the ultimate yeah well that's fair enough though yeah because as we know from, from Mr Bendis Peter's 40 now oh yeah yeah from a continuity standpoint I like that it's really left ambiguous as to how and when May found out the writers learning from their mistakes when they revealed that not only did Mary Jane know Peter's secret but she'd always known from the very beginning Oh, yeah. She found out that he was Spider-Man in Amazing Fantasy 15. Who aren't there? Nope, Murray Jane. Murray Jane wasn't in it from then. She saw him. This is the retcon. Right. She saw him leave the house to go and catch the burglar that killed Uncle Ben. So Murray Jane has known forever that he's Spider-Man. Okay. Which it, and it was a nice person that she didn't go out and tell anyone. And tell it. Well, see, that's the problem. Um, by telling us exactly how Murray Jane found out Peter's secret, and that she'd always known from the beginning... It really cast Mary Jane in a bad light in some stories. Specifically, I think, um, 
Betty and Ned Leeds' wedding. Peter disappears off to fight the Mirage. And Murray Jane stands in the middle of a crowd of all his friends while Spider-Man's there going, where's Peter gone? So if she knew that yeah. he was Spider-Man, you're sat there going, you bitch. <laughs> but obviously she didn't. Yeah. So that that's not something they really thought through. Um, if only this story could have been left to stand as it was because you're not spelled out when Murray, men, May sorry, found out he was Peter Parker and Spider-Man so I can live with it because yeah. it's left up to you to work it out um, and if they'd left this alone and Peter had taken to heart his aunt's words given up the superhero business settled down with his wife and child it would have been brilliant but alas the gathering of the five storyline Gathering of the Five. <sighs> Wasn't that Battlestar Galactica? Yeah, if only. It will be the established five Parkers. that this May Parker that dies in this issue and is buried and possibly even autopsied. I think I did discuss this with Michael Bailey that yeah. you you can request there isn't an autopsy apparently in America, whereas over here an autopsy is compulsory, isn't it, mm. for people who die at home. Yeah. Whereas in America, apparently, if it's an elderly person and you were there when they died, you can request that they don't perform an autopsy. Okay. But either way, this woman died and was buried. So May Parker is legally dead then? Yeah. May Parker is legally dead. They don't just believe to be dead. Um so it is as Michael pointed out earlier on it is established that this May was in fact an actress hired by Norman Osborn to mess with Peter's head and our heads and our heads an actress a method actress apparently because she she goes all out yeah. and literally dies for her now that's commitment to the role Maybe Robert De Niro never did that did not and he's called a method actor okay <laughs> it's just shocking isn't it uh, the epilogue to the story in which Peter is arrested for murder gets increasingly confusing as the storyline progresses. Um, Peter is first swapped out for a hologram so that he can investigate his own crime. And then Ben takes his place in jail so that Peter can be with MJ. And then we have a few issues where Peter is the Scarlet Spider. And then a few issues of other clones of Peter showing up. And then Kane confesses to the crimes and Peter learns he's the clone and Ben is the real deal. I'm looking forward to you reading this when I've got applause on what planet. <laughs> <laughs> the second story in the issue, before Michael's head truly explodes, sees DiMatteis joined by John Romita Jr. and Senior as artists with Ken Lopez as letter and Paul Beckton as colorist. So I don't care what the story's like in this one. It's going to be gorgeous to look at. Entitled The Parker Legacy Part 1, A Shock to the System, it begins with Spider-Man kneeling amidst the garbage as the rain buckets down around him. It's five years ago, and the clone who was Peter Parker, but who will turn out to be Ben Riley, who will turn out not to be a clone, but then will turn out to, in fact, be a clone, is pondering his predicament. He should just kill himself, but finds that Peter's morality pervades his own viewpoint. After a night roughing it, he returns home to Peter's Chelsea apartment, takes some old clothes and a duffel bag and leaves to make his own way in the world. And that's it. You're still pondering that whole clone thing, aren't you? What? Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to forget everything about clothes, so I'm going to read it all. Alright, fair enough. Um, I'll try. Yeah, that's, that's fine. It's going to work. Yeah. This is an interesting prelude to the upcoming story art with a look at the events following Amazing Spider-Man 150. This version of Peter states that he believes suicide to be a sin. 
we've talked before on our show about the various different religious beliefs of the characters, and this seems to lend credence to the idea that maybe Peter's a Catholic. I mean, other religions believe suicide's a sin. Yeah. So this neither confirms or denies Peter's religious affiliation. I thought it interesting Matthias would bring it up in such a way. Mm. I mean, you could argue it was purely for the purpose of answering, well, why didn't Ben just kill himself? Yeah. And you're like, well, it's not that easy to kill yourself, really. I mean, you could have just had that. Yeah. But anyway, I quite liked it. Or, or, say, him leap off a building, wanting to kill himself, but then going, oh, crap, no, I don't want to do this, and then... Oops, I'm not wearing my web shooters! <laughs> ah, splat! Oh, because he does have his web shooters. <laughs> um, a page four. Why didn't you kill me? Well, maybe... Dead. It's because you turned around and smashed up his truck instead of, you know, being... Instead of letting him run you yeah. over. Yeah, fair enough. Um, what were this really scores is the artwork? Ask Michael. Michael. Um, yes? What is my single favourite image of Spider-Man and by what artist? Romita in the rain. Yeah. So an entire issue of Spider-Man, drawn by John Romita, in the rain. It's heaven. I, I don't like it. <laughs> you, what? Right. No, Go on. look. At it, especially that first part. It's fantastic. No, that's not rain. Do you, do you do you know that cover of him in the sewers or the big water in his the his Steve Dicko one, and he's holding up that big girder. Yeah, that's what it is. That's not rain. That's someone stood above him with a bucket full of water. It's very rainy. Very yeah, very rainy in one area. Well, Maybe he's underneath a leaky drain. Oh, is it? Have you considered he's that? He's taking a bath in public in his costume. He's not taking a bath. I thought this was rendered magnificently. Page one, page three, panel three, page four, panel one, page five, panel four, all magnificent. Come on, what's wrong with that one? Well, yeah, it's good. It's just you have ones where he overdoes it. I don't care. I just think it looks great. I really do. It's artistic license, I'll give you that. But I, I think it's brilliant. I really do. Um, this story would continue in Spider-Man 57 and Spectacular Spider-Man 223 and would establish where the clone got the name Ben Riley and how he started wandering the world all David Banner style. Not much goes on there. Well, it ultimately will lead into the miniseries The Lost Years. Oh. Also by D. Matthias and John Romita Jr. Okay. The final story in the issue, and this is rapidly becoming the longest episode we've ever done. Mm. I think uh, is the morning after issues. and we only did three yeah but two of them all three of them were double sized though yeah the final story is called The Morning After by writer James DeMatteis where he's joined by Stan Lee with Tom Grummet and Al Milgram as penciler and inker respectively Starking's comic craft letters and Chia Chai Wang is colorist that's true Beginning with a retelling what happened when Spider-Man stopped the burglar, but going on to show us the aftermath the next day, Peter wakes screaming from the nightmare that never ends. His uncle is dead because of him. Peter considers leaving, letting Aunt May get on with her life, but acknowledges that it's the coward's way out, dresses and goes downstairs. Aunt May sits at the table and Peter realises that he could tell her he's Spider-Man. After all, Spider-Man did catch the killer. May's reaction is a little hysterical, and she says Spider-Man didn't do it for Ben, he did it for publicity. Peter is to never talk of it again. With this, she heads upstairs to try and get some sleep, and Peter realises he can never tell her the truth. So, she knew he was Spider-Man? Not at this point. Not at this point, no. Oh, wow, was she not No, no, the Mayor Parker thing, you can decide where she found out. Right, okay. It's never spelled out what so she found out. She found decided she knew from the beginning because she saw him leave the building. <laughs> if that's what you want to decide. I mean, on the one hand, 
this is a nice little tale that once again portrays May Parker as a bit of a harridan. <laughs> I don't know what it is with writers since Stanley, but they just seem to forget May was originally a nice old lady who fretted about Peter because he was her only surviving relative. Well, until brand new day. When a whole bunch of Parker relatives would come crawling out of the woodwork. Yeah, they all cousins. Yeah, all second cousins and stuff. Somewhere along the way, May gets changed into a character that is best unlikable. See recent brand new day stories, and at worst, a bitter, selfish old woman. There was a recent Dan Slott story where May horribly overreacts when Peter isn't with Betty Brown because he's out catching the guy who mugged her. Okay. This despite the fact May Parker's never got a rat's ass about Betty Brown. Yeah. On the other hand. There's a reason to why May was unlikable recently. Why? The Mr. Negative guy. Oh, yeah, the Mr. Negative guy did something to her, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I'd, I'd forgotten about that. So I wonder if that's why she is a complete tool at the minute, then. No, she's free of that now. Is she? No, in those stories that I'm on about. It oh, could right. be, because Mr. Negative did make her... A, I can't remember the chronology on that. Mm. On the one hand, May's just lost her husband, dear, so we'll cut her some slack. I mean, but, um, but God, this is a depressing anniversary issue, isn't it? Yeah. You've got a story where Aunt May dies... You've got a story where a guy's having a real identity crisis and considers killing himself. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a story about the morning after a loved one's died. Uh, at least for the Superman celebratory issue, we've got him teaming up with a dead person to save the day. Yeah. And Spider-Man 300 was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Spectacular Spider-Man 200, somebody died. <laughs> is this the hallmark of a Spider-Man anniversary issue? God, this is yeah, someone dies. Uh, a reader dies. Listen, uh, they try to depression. Dear me. Um, John... Listen to Joy Division and Depression. <laughs> Why are you reading in the Smiths? Girlfriend in a coma. Uh, I know. Get what I, I know. Give me my yeah, uncle Ben Please, badge. please, please. Let me get what I want this time. The she and he let cover version of that's not bad at all. Cancel the Clone Saga right now. <laughs> One of the few cover versions I like as much as the original. Good times for a change. <laughs> Clone Saga's finished. Peter Parker's the real one. Ben Riley was the clone. It's all oh, over. Dear, all over. Dear. I've finally gotten what I want. This, this time. time. Uh, again, there's, there's some adverts in this thing. Reboot apparently started, which I never watched. Um, but the Spider-Man Gargoyles, which I never watched. Spider-Man, the animated series, gets an advert that I've got on DVD, and there's a couple of other things. Nothing too exciting. Uh, and that's it for our anniversary issues. I think we need to finish today with please, please, please let me get what I want this time. Okay. Do you want the Smiths, or do you want she and he? The Smiths. Do you want the original? Yeah. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, we're going to close out with the Smiths, because that's what Michael wants this week. Because <laughs> it's been a miserable episode from yeah. a story point of view. Apart from Spider-Man 300. Should, should have rain, a rain sound effect playing the All the way through. Well. Yeah. <laughs> um, next week, it'll probably be a bit shorter. Probably. I'm hoping, because my throat's hurting. Uh, but next week, it's my top ten favourite Spider-Man stories. You've got to read ten Spider-Man stories for next week. I'll do it. Okay, fair enough. See you next week, lovely people. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Good times for a change See the luck I've had Can make a good man turn bad So please, please, please Let me, let me Let me get what I want this time.
this comics is that the devil will make work for idle hands to do production. And all opinions expressed by Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money for this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the second name. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum www.forumforgeeks.com where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.